Welcome to the Travel Pulse Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bowman, the executive editor of TravelPulse.com. Today's episode is brought to you by VirtualTravelEvents.com, the leading digital event platform for travel advisors and travel industry suppliers. The process of attending physical trade shows can be expensive and time-consuming for travel advisors, which is why a majority of advisors barely attend any trade shows during the year. Virtual Travel Events hosts yearly events on weddings, honeymoons, luxury travel, group travel, and so much more. It puts advisors and suppliers together with live presentations, interviews with top industry executives and travel professional peers, live chats, and the opportunity to win prizes for attending and participating. Head over to virtualtravelevents.com to learn more. What's up, everyone? Today is Wednesday, July 5th. Hope you guys had a fantastic 4th of July holiday weekend, a long extended weekend for everyone out there. Some of you still traveling, I'm sure. So we got a great show for you lined up today. We're going to be talking big news around the world of travel in the last week, checking in on those July 4th travel numbers. And later in the show, I'll be joined by Shannon Stoll, CEO of the Adventure Travel Trade Association. We'll discuss extreme travel tourism versus adventure travel tourism and get his insights and advice for travel advisors on selling adventure travel. But first, as we do for every episode, in case this is your first time listening, let's dive into what's been trending in the world of travel in the last week. We begin with the TSA's record-setting number of passengers over the holiday weekend. It's a new one-day record occurred on Friday, June 30th. TSA screened 2,882,915 passengers, breaking the single-day mark previously set on the Sunday after Thanksgiving in 2019. Travel's back, baby. I'm curious to see what Thanksgiving numbers in 2023 will be later on this year, but overall it was a pretty big weekend in the air travel space. Some cancellations and delays, but that was going to happen. Weather impacted things a lot more than anything else there, but frustrating at times, but you know, we can't control Mother Nature. She's going to do what she's going to do, and that's going to impact some people at times. That's why it's always good to have travel insurance and always work with a travel advisor too for my consumer listeners out there, but throwing out the numbers, Thursday, June 29th was really when it all took off. Let's let's be real. A lot of people had Friday off for half days, but a lot of people flying out. 2.7 million passengers on Thursday, June 29th. Saturday, oh, we, we know Fridays was the record day, 2.8. Saturday, July 1st saw 2.5 million. Sunday, July 2nd saw 2.5 million. Monday, July 3rd only had 2.2 million. And Tuesday, July 4th only had 2 million passengers screened by the TSA. So to me, that tells me that a lot more people, you know, didn't make this a short weekend. They're extending it out. You know, a lot of people had flew out over the weekend and doing that week-long vacation, maybe even longer for some folks out there. So curious how your 4th of July weekend was. Podcast at TravelPulse.com is the email. You can let me know that. Or if you have any upcoming summer travel plans, always great to hear from you folks out there. Jumping over to other air travel news, we've got based on the success and early results of the pilot program for TSA's facial recognition, they're going to roll out more at security checkpoints at more than 400 airports in the coming years. So facial recognition expanding, and no surprise there, that is the way of the future. And let's hope that it, uh, the opponents against this aren't, aren't correct and in, in their worries about everything with the privacy situation going on. And, you know, the TSA does say that... Um, they dump whatever storage system is in the, there. Uh, their, their spokesman came out and said biometric data is overwritten as soon as the next passenger steps up to the queue. And then when the technology is turned off at the end of the day, whatever storage system is in there dumps completely. There is no saved image. I hope that stays true. And they're not just hoarding our face images everywhere, but I don't think that is the case. So it's just designed to you know make the air travel experience easier and getting through security faster and those lines you know they stay deep i'm sure if you were out this past weekend you saw lots of lines 
In other air travel news, Southwest Airlines pilots are seeking to be released from a federal mediation process related to their ongoing negotiations for a new labor contract. The Southwest Airlines Pilots Association President Casey Murray said in the statement, quote, It is an unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in today. However, our pilots have waited long enough for a contract. We can no longer sit by as our fellow aviators are rewarded with industry-leading contracts and watch as we bleed qualified new hires to our competitors. We love our airline and we are willing to do what it takes to get Southwest back to the airline it once was, end quote. So not ideal in that situation. Rough times for Southwest uh, just over the last year on this. So you got to get this done if you're Southwest. You can't have any more you know, negativity out there in the eyes of the consumer of, oh, are, are, are we going to be worried about any pilot strikes or anything? So I don't think anything like that is going to happen on the, on the strike stuff. It takes a lot for a strike to, to go through. So they'll they'll get uh, they'll get paid hopefully you know i i believe firmly believe pilots and flight attendants deserve more money than they're getting now so in other air travel news the united ceo scott kirby is under fire and was forced to apologize after he took a private jet when his original commercial flight was canceled kirby said quote taking a private jet was the wrong decision because it was insensitive to our customers who were waiting to get home i sincerely apologize to our customers and our team members who have been working around the clock for several days often through severe weather, to take care of our customers, end quote. Scott, man, I feel for you. You had to apologize on this. I don't think you had to, honestly. I mean, you know, with the media, social media backlash and everything, I, I get it while you, you get on there. And it does, you know, look a little, but, you know, this, United didn't pay for this. This is Scott Kirby paid for his own private. If you've got the means to it, if you've got the access to it and you got to get home, wouldn't you do the same thing, right? Exactly. You don't want to be stuck around. You want to get home if you have the means to make that happen, why not do it? So I don't fault you at all there, Scott. Fly on, man. Speaking of summer cancellations, though, airports with the highest percentage of delays, new release on this, uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, Las Vegas, Nevada, San Francisco, California, Palm Beach, Florida, and Maui, Hawaii are the airports with the highest percentage of delays as of late on the latest data, and the airports with the highest percentage of cancellations. It's a struggle town in Dallas, Texas, for Dallas Love Field and Dallas-Fort Worth coming in at one and two. Then you've got Chicago, Midway, three, Milwaukee, Wisconsin at four, and Minneapolis, St. Paul at number five. Listen, nobody likes cancellations. Nobody likes delays. It's part of the air travel experience, though, so you've always got to be prepared, as I said earlier in the episode. You never know what can happen, so make sure you are covered. Jumping over to destination news we've got the forward keys data has the most search for travel destinations out there you can check out the top 10 on travelpulse.com but it's top five number one bangkok was a bit of a surprise number two paris i thought paris would be number one uh, on on that one no surprise though europe is in there again number three with london then you got bali at number four and europe again with barcelona at number five so europe trending big for sure but thailand jumping up in the top on that Data here from Forward Keys. No surprises on Bali and Barcelona, though. Always top trending destinations out there. Can't wait to get out to Barcelona sometime and Bali, honestly. But love to get back to London sometime. Maybe maybe next year or a little bit later. I know things are a bit crowded. Just had a friend return from all, um, a London and UK trip and everything. So love to see friends out there traveling this summer, too. So in other destination news, over in Cancun, the National Guard is being deployed to enhance security for tourists this summer. Uh, summer season is not necessarily the busiest time of the year in Cancun, but it's still popular. The Cancun International still draws more than 600 flights a day. So the goal is to keep tourists safe, officials say. And you can see around social media, people are posting as well. There's like groups of, you know, five to seven guard members, big guns walking around the beach patrolling. So 
you know, you want to keep the violence at bay. You want you want to make sure that you know you you don't have any threats of that nature. There were recent shootings, but you know, shootings happen everywhere around the world, unfortunately. So Mexico is still a safe destination. Your resort spots are are still safe in my eyes, and I don't think that should deter anyone from traveling to the destination because you're going to see security out there in a lot of popular destinations around the world. It's just kind of the nature of where we're at in the world of travel in this. In other destination news, Drabovnik is banning wheelie suitcases with nearly a $300 fine for breaking the rule. So under a new law, suitcases mustn't be carried and not dragged on wheels through the streets of the historic city center. And this is kind of wild to me that you're just outright banning suitcases on this, but you know, maybe it'll spark a wave of change of, you know, some backpackers through there instead of uh, your giant wheel. But I, I kind of get it. You want to preserve your space and, you know, it's uh, not great. A $300 fine is up there. So uh, hopefully you are strong and you can carry your wheeled suitcases if you're headed to Dubrovnik, Croatia there because they're not messing around on that. You know who's not messing around is Aleph Aeronautics and they're producing a flying car that just got approved by the Federal Aviation Administration. The world's first flying car to receive the approval and it's 100% electric. The car is expected to cost $300,000 when it hits the market. Pre-sales are open with interested customers able to pay a $150 deposit to get on the waiting list or $1,500 for a priority spot on that. So if you've got big dollars and you're interested in a flying car, check it out. I think this is awesome. I mean, you know, the mind goes back to the Jetsons right away and certainly would be nice to have this as it has been dreamed about for so, so long. But uh, I believe I want to see it type of situation. So... That's awesome that it's been approved by the FAA. Uh, I'm still very cautious in the early goings here, and we'll see. You know, Closing out what's been trending, though, in the news of the travel industry, we've got Mireille Cruises has acquired MV Larva, and a new cruise ship that will take travelers on the world's longest voyage is what they're billing this as, a three-year cruise. The three-year journey will span 130,000 miles and visit 382 ports across 148 countries, including the continent of Antarctica. So that's a long time. Could you do it? I don't know. I don't know about me. Three years is a long time on that. I, I like the idea of a world cruise, you know, like a hundred day cruise or something like that. But three years at bay, you know, you just let me just sell my house and just go live on a cruise ship. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What about you, though? Podcast at TravelPulse.com is the email. Reach out. Let me know your thoughts on that or any of the other news that we discussed today. Leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. So that wraps it up for the trending news. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Shannon Stoll. And now joining me on the show is Shannon Stoll, CEO of Venture Travel Trade Association. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work in the travel industry. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I've uh, I've been running the Adventure Travel Trade Association since 2004, and we've got about 1,200 members. Actually, we hit 1,200 yesterday um, all around the world, and those are tour operators, uh, travel advisors, governments, CBBs, um, pretty much everybody that's in the ecosystem of, of adventure travel. And I operate out of Colorado, but our team live in 10 different countries worldwide, and we're here to serve the, the adventure travel community and to try to help it make more make it more sustainable. Excellent. Yes, we love that here at the podcast and focusing on more sustainable travel and eco-friendly and just uh, 
doing right by the earth here. So, you know, adventure travel, adventure travel is, you know, kind of been thrust into the spotlight a little bit more um, recently in light of uh, the tragic events. Uh, so two headlines from recent weeks. I want to get your thoughts on um, the missing sub raises troubling questions for the adventure tourism industry and Titan sub implosion highlights extreme tourism boom, but adventure can bring peril. So what do you think of these and the current state of the adventure travel sector right now? Um, I, I think they're, in both cases, they're they're making an error in conflating adventure travel with extreme excursions and extreme expeditions. So, you know, if you if you look at the at the specific definition of adventure travel that we've worked on over many years, it involves three core elements: in involvement in nature, uh, immersion in uh, in uh, culture. So. That might be that would obviously be a culture different than your own, and then some sort of physical activity. So, nature, culture, activity. So, if you look at an an experience like the the submersible, you're not really entering. You're not entering another culture, and you're not really doing anything active. You're sitting in a in a metal tube. So, by by our own definition, it doesn't really fit in. But then also, when you look at it, um, there's there's no way to hammer that that square peg into a round hole, so to speak. Um, the average, uh, land cost of a, an adventure travel trip, uh, in commercial adventure travel is around $3,000. So when you have a, a submersible trip at 250,000, you've literally got 80 times the cost for, for an experience. So in, in every measure you can think of it, it sort of falls outside the norm for us. Um, it's definitely, you know, there's definitely been an increase in the last, 10 or 20 years, I guess, I don't know, because we don't measure it exactly, of um, one-off, really expensive, high-risk opportunities, space, submersibles, the poles, high-altitude high mountaineering. These are all things that sort of get lumped in with adventure travel, but when we look at ourselves as an industry, it's a, it's a much more uh, risk-mitigated environment than, than those extreme experiences. Gotcha. Yeah, there's there's risk with all sorts of a travel and, you know, adventure is at the core of travel and the essence of what, you know, travel really started with, with exploration and everything. So obviously, you right. know, these these are extreme exploration ones. And I mean, that uh, is always going to happen, I think, in the world. So, yeah, with with adventure travel, I mean, um, just a quick little, uh, I guess, game here, your, your, your thoughts here, true or false. Adventure travel and tourism is for everyone. Extreme travel tourism, though, is only for the wealthy and or crazy, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And that's actually part of the reason that we ended up defining it as nature culture activity is, is it didn't feel fair for adventure to be owned by any one specific group. And I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, people thought of adventure travel as mostly young, fit people doing really risky things, um, ice climbing and bungee jumping and skydiving. And, and that's just, that's not what defines the industry. So let's say you're an elderly, it's an elderly person or couple that wants to walk uh, in, I do a walking tour in Ireland. Well, that's an adventure trip for them. You know, they're, they're entering another culture. It's physically active and they're also experiencing nature. Um, so, so in our, in our minds, adventure travel, we like to say it's very accessible to everyone. Which is absolutely needed in the industry, you know, more accessibility for for all, and I, I think en- en- encompassing 
you know, that it is truly for everyone is is the mantra. And, and, and that's great. You know, but we look at adventure travel um, like records. And one of the highlights of one of those uh, stories that was, uh, I think it was the um, NPR or the CNBC one. Um, they had said there were record numbers going through the Drake's Passage, you know, in Antarctica. And like Antarctica tourism has like really risen up just over the last year, post pandemic here. A lot of people are like, I'm going to Antarctica, you know, dropping big dollars right. on that. And then you also have the record number of people um, going on Mount Everest and everything. And a lot of deaths there in 2023 with, you know, the risks associated with that, um, which seems more on the the wealthy, crazy sides as a, opposed to, you know, maybe visiting Antarctica is, yes, more on the wealthy side, but also a bit of an adventure if you're going to go through that violent sea passage over there in Drake's Passage. Sure, sure, absolutely. And when it, you know, it just occurred to me too, I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and I heard, um, I heard of a company called Adaptive Adventures, which are helping people with all sorts of uh, disabilities to be able to do the outdoor adventures and activities they want to do. Um, so when I say it's accessible for all, there's, there's somebody everywhere um, helping with the niches, uh, with the, the different people who have maybe a, a bigger stretch to get to that adventure travel experience. There's someone out there that's that has a, a business or a service or is uh, is willing to help. So it's truly, um, I thought it was very heartwarming. Yeah, that that is great, and I'm sure that you um, you can find more about them. You know, with through Adventure Travel and uh, Trade Association that you guys put on. I mean, that's helpful. You guys, you know, put that out there for for everyone to know, so that it is really accessible. So. Um, Absolutely. When we talk about destinations or experiences, though, uh, in in adventure travel and in, you know be all encompassing here, um, are there any places that are really standing out or really any experiences that are, are standing out or maybe on the rise uh, beyond just you know Antarctica or Everest, like I mentioned? Well, it's it's a little hard to to identify right now just because everything is so strange post COVID. Okay. Um, you know, some of the places that I think were turning into hotspots. I think are still headed that direction. So places like Colombia, we're, we're really, um, we're really on the rise. Japan, um, everybody seems to want to go to Japan and, um, and it used to be for the cherry blossoms and Tokyo and Kyoto. And now and that was it, and yeah. of course we're going to be doing our, our big conference there this year. So we're probably, we have heightened awareness about people's interest in Japan. Um, but you know, the, as far as, as, top trends that we're seeing custom itineraries, slower travel, um, multi-generational all within the adventure context, of course. Mm. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting to see what, see how some of these trends that were really starting to crest in 2019 and then had the big pause and then it came back, but it, but it, um, you know, it's of course a little hard to, uh, to stay on top of it all right now. It's uh, everything has exploded so fast. Yeah, the boom back here, uh, exceeding expectations right. for sure. But I mean, those, those trends sort of are in line with kind of more of the global t- travel and tourism trends, at least for American travelers, yes. with the, the multi-gen stuff and, and the slower travel. And yeah, I think that's a, a post-COVID mindset of realizing that, you know, time is precious and let's get out and do what we want and make the most of it. And you know, yeah. the slower travel aspect of that is going to lean to that. So yeah, I wish I, I wish I could take a month off and do an extravagant <laughs> something, but uh, yes, yeah, exactly in the future. So, um, but for for you, you know, you've been doing this adventure travel stuff for a while. What has been your most extreme travel experience or adventurous travel experience out there? You know, um, <clears throat> I think the one that um, that sticks with me, and it wasn't that it was extreme from a 
from a activity standpoint, but more, I guess the most extreme for me is I climbed Rainier with my brother about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And we did it without a guide. And it was, um, that was the most extreme thing that I, I think I've done is actually, there were a couple of really scary moments. Um, but as far as like an adventure travel trip that involved culture and everything, I took my, my 16 year old son to Northern Iraq and we did a, a seven day tour with one of our members, um, Explorer Mesopotamia. And it was when the U S and Iraq, uh, Iraqi forces and Kurdish forces were crushing the last of ISIS in, in, um, Mosul. So we were actually up on a, up on a ridge and between us and Mosul was, it was only about 20 kilometers. So we could see the, see when the bombs went off from the, from the planes dropping the bombs, it was way off in the distance and you could hear and feel that little puff of, of an explosion far away. Um, between us and there were, you know, all three armies that, uh, so we were, it was surreal because we were very safe. Um, but it was obviously very close to the epicenter of one of the world's most dangerous spots, but our tour operator, and I always tell people this, if you're going to go somewhere that's not, um, totally on grid, um, a tour operator is the only smart way to do it because then you've got somebody who understands what's going on on the ground. Like our, our, our own guide had um, had lived through the, the Saddam era and um, described going through that experience. He also had uh, had a, some brushes with ISIS fighters. And he, he said, I, I just know when somebody's ISIS. And only one time did I feel like somebody, a guy from ISIS, got into Kurdistan where, where we were. And um, so he said, I just exited the scene immediately and reported it. So knowing that we had a, you know, a guide who was totally aware of what was going on um, was, you know, very, uh, very heartening because otherwise it could be a really, really scary experience. But it's one of the most stunning trips I've ever done. You're seeing the plains of Nineveh. You know, you're you're seeing uh, the tomb of Nahum, uh, which, you know, at, at the time we went, there were no, no tourist facilities there. A guy comes out and unlocks a chain and lets you into the into the tomb of Nahum. And um, so we saw a lot of really, really incredible things and, and met amazing people. So I, I would say that was probably the most extreme just because it's so different than anything else I've ever done. There's no McDonald's or Starbucks or TGI Fridays. It is Iraq and it's changing fast. Um, so anybody who's interested in that, I, I would recommend going sooner rather than later. Yeah, before it gets a bit commercialized. Uh right. Right, also, like um, like the first time I went to Egypt, I t- you know, see the Sphinx and turn around. I'm like, oh, Pizza Hut, okay, right, <laughs> right, <Still> right, right, <laughs> yeah. It's a little disheartening when you get into a, a really remote location. I, I had that same experience in Guizhou, China, which is the the poorest province in China and very remote, very mountainous. It's the one of the last to get developed because of the mountains. And there's a Walmart. <laughs> and I went, no, Walmart shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah wow so yeah. um what would be your go-to tips for anyone that is uh looking to take a, a thrill-seeking trip well i you know especially in light of the recent tragedy with ocean gate you know i think first of all knowing knowing exactly who you're going with and you know this couldn't have really helped 
the people making that decision because he, you know, they, they had a, they had a reputation of bringing people back every time. And so you can't really look at history in that case, but I think, you know, obviously that's a very extreme example, but for somebody who's, who's going to take a, say a climbing or a, or a safari or where you could have interactions with dangerous wildlife, I would just ask pointed questions like what are, what sort of risk mitigation plans do you have uh, for your business? What happens if there's an accident in the back country? Do you have a plan and extraction and uh, an extraction plan? Um, what are your guides trained in? Don't ask, are your guides trained for safety? Ask, what are they trained in? Um, because it matters. And, and, you know, there's some obvious ones. Like if you're going on a rafting trip, the guides should have swift water rescue training. If it's in remote locations, they should have wilderness medicine training. Um, and uh, actually they call it woofer wilderness and first responder. Um, so, so there's, there's those sorts of things. I, I also encourage people to ask the sustainability questions along with those and say, you know, instead of asking, are you, is your company sustainable or responsible? It's very easy for somebody to say yes. So I would say, tell me about your, your, your investments or commitments to, to environmental, uh, environmental impacts from your trip. Uh, tell me, tell me how you interact with local people. Are, are local people a part of the, uh, do they benefit from the, the tour we're going to be taking? And I think, you know, any operator that is, you know, worth their salt is going to answer very cleanly and clearly and be able to say, you know, we go, we go far beyond recycling and, and please reuse your towel. You know, we're, we're using solar only. We've eliminated all plastic in our, in our camps, whatever it might be. So, so I would ask the, the pointed questions and then see how the, the operator comes back on both safety, sustainability. And then it, it also doesn't hurt to ask, how long have you been in business? You know, and if somebody says, been doing this for 40 years, never had a fatality, um, you know, that's, that's a really good sign. And I, I use that number and that, that example because a friend of mine owned a rafting company here in Colorado on where they take people through Browns Canyon and some other locations, which is class three, class four, and get pretty rowdy. And they had 40 years with no fatalities um, and when they sold their business. So, and that's because they trained their guides. Their guides were always rigorously trained and checked and rechecked. And every season they have to renew and re-up. So it gives the, the customer this incredible thrill, thrill experience, thrilling experience. And yet uh, risks have been mitigated. You can't ever eliminate a hundred percent, right? Um, you never know what mother nature is going to do or when a piece of gear fails. So there, you know, things happen but good operators are, are able to avoid the vast majority of those problems. That's great advice there. And I, I think, yeah, on the, on the safety question on that and, and making the, you know, specific questions are, are important and not being afraid to, to get into the specifics of that instead of just a simple yes or no question. And yeah, I mean, you can tell when you ask people environmental related questions, how their body language changes and stuff and, and what, what they're really about um, on that, at least from my experience of what I've noticed and bringing those questions up, um, particularly in the hotel space. But yeah, yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're spending a lot of money on a trip, that operator should be more than happy to take the time to walk through and and say, you know, here's why we think you're going to love this because you know you're asking all the right questions of us. We're very focused on sustainability. Um, most of our staff are locals; they they're from the local village. We make sure that the village school is 
is kept up and we, we donate to the, the, uh, the medical facility there, you know, that, that sort of answer is a good answer. So lastly here, um, what would be your, your advice to uh, travel advisors on selling adventure travel? Well, you know, my, my observation of the ones that are most successful in it are they have a passion for it. So I don't think, think you can necessarily manufacture passion for something. So I think, you know, for, for those advisors who are interested in, in different forms of adventure, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the spectrum of opportunities is so, so broad. So I know one, one uh, advisor who came to a couple of our events in Mexico, and then she decided I am only going to specialize in Mexico. I love Mexico. I speak some Spanish. I'm super passionate about it. And so I think finding your, your, your slice, you know, rather than trying to be somebody that could sell absolutely everything is focus on what you're super passionate about, what you love, and then go experience that, get to know it. And then you'll sell it so much better because you'll be able to tell that client, oh my God, you know, snorkeling in this river in Bonito, Brazil was, it was like being in the ocean. It was so clear. The the sand was white. The, the I had a caiman drift right under me. I saw an anaconda on the side. You pop your head out and then you're not in the ocean because you're hearing jungle sounds. You're hearing birds and macaws and toucans. And, you know, that's that's the sort of thing where a customer is going to go, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. And and that comes from that personal experience. So, you know, in, in our world, we put on events and host travel advisors all the time. So they can watch for, for, for openings for the, the events that we do and um, get involved. That's the best way is just to go and experience it, fall in love and then sell what you love. Exactly. Yeah. That firsthand experience is key. And, you know, the passion really shines through when, when you can touch on that. And obviously, you know, fill up your social media with, with all that stuff uh, to get the people having their FOMO going. So for right. sure. And then travel insurance is always as key. You know, any type of travel these days is definitely needed. And I'm sure, you know, the, the risks that come with adventure aspects of it, got to get that travel insurance. Yes, absolutely. The insurance is important. And, you know, on some trips, if I'm going to go somewhere really remote, I will make sure that I also have evacuation uh, backup. So um, things like global rescue, um, you know, products like that can uh, can give you that extra assurance that if something really goes sideways, they can come get you. Obviously, going into a, into a deep sea submersible is a, a different story. Yeah. You're you're making a very, very difficult and high-risk decision. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate it. Anything you want to uh, plug or, or how people can get in touch with you or, or um, the ATTA or anything like that, fire away. Okay, yeah. I mean, feel free to contact us at adventuretravel.biz. That's our website. And then um, I'm on LinkedIn. Always happy to, to connect with, with folks in the travel industry that are interested in adventure. And I would just say, you know, one thing we're trying to encourage everyone in our network to do every day is just progress a little on sustainability. Um, nobody's doing it perfectly. Nobody's got that thing nailed and in the can, but, um, but we're all trying to do at least some incremental steps to, uh, to make the world a better place through travel because travel should make destinations more healthy. I love it. All for it, man. Thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and uh, safe travels coming up to uh, Brazil. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me on the program. 
Thanks again to Shannon for jumping on and talking all things adventure travel. If you'd like to hear more about Shannon's life in the adventure travel space, you can hear his interview over on Humans of Travel, the sister podcast here to the Travel Pulse podcast space here. Shout out to Emma on that. It's a great interview with Shannon on his life in adventure travel space as well, if you'd like more there. Again, that's the Humans of Travel podcast. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you guys had a wonderful holiday weekend and some great summer travel plans coming up. So We'll be back again next week. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. 